0: I strongly believe that you can be successful without sacrificing your health or your sanity in the process. You ready? Let's design the optimized version of you. As 2021 winds down and we approach the new year, it is so easy to get caught up in the chaos of the holiday season and right off the end of the year is a total loss, putting our goals and our intentions aside and telling ourselves, ah, we'll just start fresh again in January. But then inevitably, when the new year hits and we create resolutions, life still gets in the way, which leads to over 92% of new year's resolutions failing. Don't worry, I'm just as guilty as anybody else. If you intend to make things happen in 2022, you don't need resolutions, you need a plan. That is why for the last five weeks of this year, I'm gonna share with you my top five interviews on designing a more fulfilling life, setting goals, building habits, and taking actions that get you long-term results. Imagine if instead of crawling to the finish line for the next five weeks in a haze of holiday indulgence, you instead took the time to identify your true values, prioritize your life down to only the essential, learn to set habits that you'll stick with, and ultimately focus on doing important work that matters to you. How much further ahead of the game would you be? Now, I'm not saying you have to start exercising five days a week, stop eating sugar and carbs, wake up and meditate at 5 a.m. every morning, or add 20 new activities to your daily routine during the most stressful month of the year. But wouldn't it be kind of awesome to start 2022 with at least a clear plan and the motivation to get started? Well, if this sounds like a better alternative, then stick with me for the next five weeks as I and five of the world's foremost experts on setting goals and getting things done help you design a plan so 2022 can be the year that everything finally comes together for you. If after listening today, you're ready to start designing your plan for next year, but you need a little guidance and inspiration, well, I've got you covered. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter to not only get my free five-part email course that will help you get started on your hero's journey, but I also have an extra special bonus as well to make this process even easier for you. Once again, the address is optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. So without further ado, here's the first part of this five-interview series with best-selling author and founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. And this episode is sponsored by Ergo Driven, creator of my favorite protein supplement, New Standard Whole Protein, which you're going to hear more about in just a bit. You can find the original show notes for this interview at optimizeyourself.me slash episode 132. I'm here today with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, who's a best-selling author and lecturer who taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. And you are also the founder of the Happiness Studies Academy. And in addition, as if all of those things weren't enough, you've also written several books, um, some of which that have ended up on the New York Times bestseller list, which include Being Happy, Happier, Even Happier, and Choose the Life You Want. So Tal It is an absolute pleasure to have you here to discuss things that are related to happiness, fulfillment, the meaning of life and otherwise. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here today.
1: Uh, Great to be here, Zach, thank you.
0: So you have a quote that really resonated with me that I wanna start with. And the quote that's right on your website is, life is too short to do what I'm supposed to do, but it's just long enough to do what I want to do. Expand on that a little bit more. What does that mean? And why is that so important for us to understand?
1: Um, You know, time flies, whether you're having fun or not, and um, we want to make the most of it. And so many of us, so many of us, uh, even though we have choices in life, we, uh, we don't make the most of it. Now, I could understand if someone was forced to to do certain work, and uh, why? because they needed to provide for their families. um that's understandable, but many people do have choices and they make wrong choices. Now, when I say wrong, I don't mean necessarily wrong financially, I don't mean wrong in terms of uh, their uh, success as traditionally uh, understood, but I mean wrong in the ultimate currency, the currency of happiness. So they forego that currency for for another currency. And if you think about it, um, what is uh, our, our life about? It is about finding happiness and not necessarily happiness in, you know, just in, in terms of pleasure or joy, but happiness in a deep sense, which includes a sense of meaning and purpose in what we do.
0: And this idea of happiness being a currency seems really ephemeral and very airy-fairy. And what does that even mean? And you're all about science and research and understanding. That's one of the reasons that you're here. And I want to get into all of that specifically because I love systems and you somehow found a way to turn happiness into a system, which made me think, oh, this is my guy. But before we dive into the specifics, what I would love to know is what in the world do squash and hamburgers have to do with you finding (laughs) your purpose and becoming one of the world's Foremost experts on happiness?
1: Yeah, um, so a lot. The, um, the answer is, you know, I was a professional squash player and um, wasn't particularly happy. You know, I was doing well in squash, I was doing well in, uh, in, in school, I was doing well in, again, the, the quantifiable measurements. However, when it came to happiness, um, you know, w- w- wasn't doing great. And um, a particular time before a tournament, I was, uh, I was preparing and I decided to eat uh, especially uh, healthfully. Now, I always ate healthy food, I'm, you know, being an athlete, but you know, this was uh, uh, unique. So for a few months, anything that entered uh, my digestive system had to go through very rigorous tests. Um, and, um, but, but there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And I said to myself that once the tournament is over, uh, I'm going to to binge. I'm going to go to my favorite hamburger store, you know, buy whatever I want to have and just and just indulge. And I did that. The tournament uh, was over. Uh, I went to the hamburger store by myself. You know, th- this was uh, a, a, supposed to be a spiritual experience. I wanted to 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 be there alone. Uh, ordered four burgers and sat down and As soon as I opened my mouth, I I closed it again. I didn't want to eat. And um, it was, uh, uh, and and I didn't understand why. It was almost an automatic uh, refusal. And the reason was because my body felt great. Um, I was strong. I was full of energy. And I didn't want to spoil that. And at that moment, was born that what I've come to call the hamburger model. Later turned into the happiness model from H to H. And uh, the hamburger model it, it goes as follows. There there are essentially four types of burgers that I thought about. And the first one was the one I just turned down, which was uh, delicious, my favorite. However, not very healthy. Another hamburger was uh, another option. Was one which was perhaps very healthy but not very tasty. The third option was neither tasty nor healthy, and the fourth option, the ideal option, was both healthy and tasty. And the more I thought about this, um, I realized that this actually captures four archetypes of happiness. So the first archetype would be one where uh, the unhealthy and tasty burger. There would be uh, the hedonist archetype. You know, you enjoy the present. However, for the long term you know, you won't feel that great about it. Eating four burgers would not make me feel great. Um, On the other hand, you have the hamburger that is healthy, that is good for the long-term, but you don't enjoy. This is the life of the rat racer. You know, you're always living for the future, not savoring, enjoying the present. The hamburger that's neither healthy nor tasty, well, that's the um, burger you just don't want to have because it doesn't taste good and, and it's unhealthy. That would be equivalent to the nihilist. A person who neither enjoys the present nor sees uh, a bright future ahead. And finally, the ideal burger, healthy and tasty, that's happiness. That's when we're doing things that we enjoy doing and we also have future benefits. So it's both present and future benefits. And if you think about it, you know, think about work that you do. You know, if you can find work that is both pleasurable, that you enjoy in the present and is meaningful, it's something that you're building, you're creating for your future, well, then you're happy in the workplace. Then, alternatively, you can just be a hedonist, enjoying the present without the future, a red racer, thinking about the future without the present, or being in the nihilist uh, archetype, which is enjoying neither.
0: And working in the world of Hollywood, I don't think there is another industry on the planet that's more of an embodiment of the rat race and trying to go towards an end result. We literally have giant gold statues that people hold up on stages that say, look, Ma, I'm a success now. And we spend our entire careers going after that. And I think that we assume, well, I'm just gonna put in all this work, whether it's miserable, whether it's a toxic work environment, whether it's content that doesn't relate to me. But once I hold that statue, now I've made it and I'm happy. And for me, I try to to move people towards fulfillment because to me, it's so much more about the process and finding meaning. So I wanna get more into this idea of happiness and fulfillment, but also talking about something that is fascinating to me, which is what you call the paradox of happiness. So let's talk a little bit about both of those concepts.
1: Yes, yeah, So, you know, Zach, you, the, the industry that you're talking about and dedicating yourself to is, is, is a very important industry because so many of the things that we see in the science of happiness, you see in that industry to the extreme. So, so let me, uh, let, let me uh, share an example. So let's say you have a, a person who growing up is, is not that happy. But uh, their dream is to become a you know, successful uh, actor, a famous actor. And uh, they're unhappy, but they say to themselves, once I make it, when I become that success, then I'll be happy. They go off to, to Hollywood and they, they try they, their luck. And of course, initially, they have to uh, wait tables and, and they have to wait. And they're not happy. In fact, they're miserable. But they say to themselves once I make it, then I'll be happy. And then fortune strikes and they make it and they make it big. And it's an uh, almost, or at least it seems like an almost overnight success. And they become uh, famous and they become very wealthy. And suddenly they have it all. Everything that they dreamed of, has come true. They have more money than they know what to do with. They are um, desired by men and women, and, and, and they feel wanted and, and, and very happy. And finally, they say, everything was worth it. I've made it. But here is what happens. Inevitably, within three months, six months, maybe a year, they go back to where they were before. And they're unhappy. And perhaps they're anxious or depressed or sad, like they were before. In other words, they enjoyed a temporary spike in their well being, not a permanent one. They go back to where they were before. However, this time they're in a much worse place. Why? Because at least before they had the illusion that once they make it, then they'll be happy. Now they're disillusioned. They no longer have it. And what happens? They fall into depression. Why? Because the difference between sadness and depression is that depression is sadness without hope. They have no hope now. They have not found the answer in reality. So very often they look for the answers outside of reality. How do you exit reality? Well, there are a few ways. One is through alcohol, another is through drugs, and the ultimate exit from reality is suicide. Now, this is really unfortunate. And the cause of this depression, unhappiness, the, the cause of this desire to exit reality is a misunderstanding of the nature of happiness, of where we gain happiness. We do not get happiness through achievements. Happiness does not come our way when we uh, attain a goal. Yes, temporary high but not more than that.
0: So I've seen the documentary, The Secret, and I know that the way to be happy is to create a vision board and just have all of these positive affirmations, and I just believe it's going to happen, and I put it out into the universe. It, that's all it takes, right?
1: Uh, I wish, I wish. Uh, you know, I I was there too. You know, I I read the books. I you know I I watched the, the movie, and um and and that's what they promise. However, this is over promising and under delivering. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't a grain of truth in the secret. Yes, we know that when we, have, when we believe that something will happen, it's more likely to happen. So beliefs sometimes become self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, however, that's only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is that hard work is essential, absolutely essential. Another part of the equation is that failure must be part of uh, success. There is no other way. In fact, what we know today is that people who succeed too quickly without failing enough initially, they will not be successful in the long term. Not only that, they'll be very unhappy in the long term. So, you know, many people say, oh, he, she, you know, they, they were so lucky because they, they, they succeeded at a young age or, uh, or so quickly. It's actually a curse in disguise,
0: So this is uh, something that I can relate to very, very well. And uh, not to go too deep into my story because my audience may have heard it, but you haven't. And I want you to help unpack this for some of the other people listening. Um, I too had a quote unquote overnight success story uh, where I came into the the world of entertainment in Hollywood right out of college, started climbing the ranks as an editor. And within about 10 to 12 years, I was editing the number one show on television at the time, which was Empire, which was breaking all kinds of rating records and was a cultural phenomenon. And I knew for a fact while I was editing editing the season one finale, that about 25 million people were going to see what I was doing in my small dark room. And that's what it was all about, right? And at the same time, I hadn't seen my children for months who were very young at the time, I believe maybe five and two or five and three years old. And I was putting them to bed via FaceTime every single night. And there was one specific instance where I remember that uh, my son who was about five years old and my wife was doing the call with them, they thought they had hung up and they hadn't. And my son asked my wife, why doesn't daddy want to be home with us at night? Why doesn't he love us? And that was it. That that was a that was moment when I realized, like you said, I thought I reached the pinnacle and I'd expected something more from it, but the work I'm doing is not fulfilling to me. Cause I thought this was what happiness was. I climbed the ranks. Now I can go to parties. I can say I work on the number one show on TV. 25 million people are seeing all the decisions that I'm making in the room. I thought that's what it was all about, and I realized it really wasn't, and that was a major smack in the face, but it ultimately was necessary to lead to the path that I'm on now, and I feel like this leads perfectly into the conversation about the paradox of happiness, where pursuing happiness actually gets you further away from it. And this idea that it's about failure just doesn't equate. Well, what do you mean? How can I be happy if I'm failing? So let's talk about these two ideas.
1: Yeah, so, so let me begin with the, the paradox of happiness. So this is research done by Iris Moss and, uh, and, and, and others. And what they essentially show is that people who wake up in the morning and say to themselves, happiness is important for me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a core value. I want to be happy. Uh, I'm pursuing happiness. They're actually less happy. And that poses a real problem because on the one hand, there's a lot of research showing that happiness is good for us. You know, people who are happier are more successful, they're more creative, they're more productive, they have better relationships, they're physically healthier, they actually live longer, all other things being equal. So everything tells us from from the research and what we're told, happiness is a good thing beyond the fact that it feels good to to feel good. So of course, I want to be happy. But then on the other hand, that research says, well, but if you... Pursue happiness. If you really want to be happy, if it's, a big, it's an important value for you, you'll be less happy. So how do you resolve this? Um, you know, one way to do it is to fool ourselves and to say, well, I don't really want to be happy, you know, wink, wink, but that, that probably won't work. What's the solution? How do, how do we resolve it? What we do is we pursue happiness indirectly. Let me explain this through a metaphor. Think about sunlight. And if you look at the sunlight directly, uh, you'll get burned. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll tear up. It's unpleasant. It's painful. So what do you do? You break down sunlight. You use prism, for example, and then you break it down into its colors, the colors of the rainbow. And then you can observe the indirect impact of sunlight. Observe it, enjoy it, savor it. The same with happiness. What we need to do with happiness is break it down into its elements, into its metaphorical colors of the rainbow. And then we can pursue those colors of the rainbow, which is pursuing happiness indirectly. Now, the question is, and again, the question for the science of happiness, what are these colors? What are the elements that make up happiness? And these are things like uh, relationships. Actually, the number one predictor of happiness. You know, Zach, you talked about your relationship with your you know, sons and with, with your wife. Number one predictor of happiness. It could be with friends. It could be with colleagues. It actually doesn't matter. We need, we need relationships. Uh, it means uh, focusing on physical well-being as well. That's another important element of a happy life. You know, Regular physical exercise has the same impact on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. Uh, nutrition, of course, uh, matters. Then there is uh, also um, emotional well-being, cultivating pleasurable emotions, embracing painful emotions as part and parcel of every life. There is uh, also learning, you know, whether it's learning by listening to podcasts or whether it's learning by reading books or walking in nature and exploring. We are also, as Aristotle said, rational animals. We need to indulge our uh, Intellectual faculty. And then there is also the element of meaning, which and meaning and purpose, which is a very important element of happiness. So if I wake up in the morning and say to myself, I'm going to do work that is meaningful, I'm indirectly pursuing happiness. If I say to myself, okay, today I'm going to work out, that's indirectly pursuing happiness. If I spend quality time with my three year old, five year old, with my BFF, that's indirectly pursuing happiness.
0: And the reason that I love this so much, like uh, I alluded to in the beginning, is I love systems. I love breaking things down on their component parts. And rather than thinking, God, I'm so unhappy. I need to be a happier person. I'm just miserable, or I'm depressed, or I'm burned out. All things I've experienced a multitude of times in my career. Instead, what I love about your system is I could put happiness on my calendar. I love that I can put a workout on my calendar and say that's currency that's going to increase my level of happiness. Or I can put work on my calendar that fulfills me as opposed to it's just the rat race trying to find a paycheck. Or I have a, a dinner with family, maybe not you know in the COVID era, um, but a dinner with family or whatever kind of interaction it might be, that's me putting happiness on the calendar. And it's a spectrum as opposed to binary, either I'm a happy person or I'm an unhappy person.
1: Right. Yeah, Zach. It, it, you know, it's, it's spot on in, on on a few levels. So first of all, let me let me begin with where you ended. You know, many people today uh, ask me. So Tal, you've been in this uh, field for thirty years. Are you finally happy? Because uh, they know that I got into this field because I was unhappy. Um, and my answer to that is, I don't know how to answer this question because um, I don't think there is a point before which you are unhappy, after which you are happy. Rather, I see happiness residing on a continuum. And yes, today I'm certainly happier, a lot happier than I was 30 years ago when I embarked on this journey. At the same time, I hope that uh, five years from now, I'll be happier than I am today. And that goes to your point. How do we do that? How do we increase happiness levels? And it's not just that we can put things on our calendar, we have to put things into our calendar. We have to create rituals in our lives. And just like we have, uh, an appointment with, um, with, with our boss or with a colleague or with a client, we need to have appointments with ourselves. And that could be an appointment to go work out or an appointment where we dedicate, dedicate time to being with uh, with our loved ones or a time when we express gratitude for all that we have, you know, um, as, as Oprah urges us to do.
0: And it's, it's funny that you said that happiness is the ultimate currency, because when you said that, I've said something very similar with my students in my program, but I say time is the ultimate currency, because time is the, the currency that allows you to buy happiness within your framework, so to speak. So I've had conversations with Cal Newport, with James Clear, with Nir Eyal, talking about the value of time and really putting your focus and your intention into one activity. That's something that I talk about extensively in my other programs and podcasts, but I want to talk about the neuroscience of how being in a state of flow and having fulfillment and connection to your work is an indirect way to get closer to happiness.
1: Yeah. You know, Daniel Goleman talks about our age being the age of distraction uh, because we are all over the place. And uh, what we need to do instead of uh, continuing to multitask, we need to single task. Let me share with you a study which uh, actually relates to your personal story in, in some way, because it has to do with uh, with with parents and children. Um, so this was conducted, uh, it's a joint project. Uh, the lead author was Daniel Kahneman, who, who was a Princeton psychologist, Nobel Prize winner in economics. And what they essentially did, he and his colleagues, was they went to women from both the United States, North America, and from Europe, professional women, and they asked them to evaluate their lives as a whole. So basically, to evaluate emotionally how they were doing within different domains. For example, um, how do you feel when you're at work? or when you're with your best friend, or with your partner, or uh, with your children, or when you're uh, shopping, or doing, you know, housework. And they evaluated their entire days. And what they found, the most surprising result of this study, was that these women did not particularly enjoy spending time with their children. Now, that was surprising, because when they asked them in terms of, you know, how much do they love their children, how meaningful their children there are, of course, they were, you know, the the highest score possible. They they, they loved the children uh, to to a great extent. However, they did not enjoy spending time with them. Why? Why? Because when these women were with their children, they were not really with their children, meaning they were physically there, but at the same time, they were perhaps on the phone or emailing or thinking about what they did earlier at work or what they have to do later at home and, and on and on. And this is a very important finding, especially for today's world. Think about the following analogy. Let's say you're listening to your favorite piece of music. And if your favorite piece of music is is like mine, you're listening to Whitney Houston's And I Will Always Love You.
0: Oh, yes. You, you know me so well. That was definitely the one I would have said. <laughs> My favorite song of all time.
1: So you're listening to whatever your favorite is. Um, I'm not judging here. Uh, you're listening to it eyes closed. And then afterwards, you're asked to rank it on rated on a scale of one to ten. Given that it's your favorite, you give it a ten. And then you're asked to listen to your second most favorite piece of music. And if your second most favorite is like mine, you're listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony.
0: That was my number one.
1: <laughs> okay eyes closed and afterwards you're right on a scale of one to 10 and once, and what do you give it? Well, I give it a nine and a half because you know, Beethoven is good, but he's not quite Whitney Houston, you must admit. <laughs> and then, and then for the optimal experience, you take these two pieces of music and you play them together. What do you get? 19 and a half? No, not a 10, not even a five. That's cacophony. It's noise. And that's modern life for you. So many people come to me, Zach, I can tell you so many people over the years have said to me, Tal, why aren't I happy? They ask about themselves. I have everything that I've ever wanted. I have work that I, that I like. I have you know, family or friends. Uh, I have all these hobbies and they actually list their hobbies. Why aren't I happy? And my answer is, For the same reason that you would not be happy listening to Whitney Houston and Beethoven simultaneously, because there can be too much of a good thing, because quantity of experiences affects quality of experiences. And what we need to do is simplify, do less rather than more. So when we're with our kids we're just with our kids, when we're with with our best friend, just be with that best friend, not while the phone is on and and, and doing other work. And when I I am working, then just do the work, single task rather than multitask. Now, it's not possible to single task 24-7, just not realistic. However, even if we have an hour or two, if if we can, three hours a day of single tasking, if we have these, what I've come to call islands of sanity throughout our day, um, then we're doing well. Then our happiness levels will increase significantly because that's when we can immerse ourselves. That's when our brains are functioning at their peak. We're experiencing, in the words of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who coined the term uh, flow, we're experiencing both Peak experience, we enjoy ourselves, and peak performance, we're at our best.
0: So what we've established is that getting into a state of flow or intentionality or single tasking is one of these indirect ways that we can increase our happiness and feel more pleasure as well as be uh, just feel more fulfilled and more content. And what I want to dig into deeper is specifically that emotional connection to your work. Because a big thing that I've experienced many times that I know is rampant in my industry and many others is my process day-to-day doesn't really change. I'm in front of a computer, I have bins worth of footage, I have information, I put it all together and I tell a story. But depending on the level of emotional involvement or engagement I have in the story that I wanna tell and the emotions that I'm conveying, I will either love my job and the time of the day just disappears. And I'm like, oh my God, where did it even go? That was awesome. Versus I can't do this another day and I'm miserable, even though the job is the same. And you've talked about how people that are creative, our job is to help other people in the world understand and process both pleasurable and, uh, good emotions through our stories, through movies, through television, through music, through all these things. So why is it so hard for me to do work that I just don't want to do, even though the process is the same?
1: You know, Zach, I want to talk about two uh, big ideas here and then and then delve deeper. The first big idea is that reality comprises object and subject. In other words, my reality depends on what's out there, as well as my interpretation of what's out there, out there, the object and the subject. So that's one big idea. The second big idea is um, uh, Victor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, distinguishes between the meaning of life and the meaning in life. So the meaning of life is, why am I here? Uh, what's my ultimate purpose? The meaning in life is, can I experience a sense of meaning and purpose in what I'm doing? right now, independent of whether I think there is an ultimate cause or or purpose to life. So given these two points, subject and object, and meaning in life and meaning off life, let me share a a study which uh, made a very big difference uh, in in my life and I know uh, in the lives of many of my clients, students, and and many others. Uh, This was conducted by uh, Amy Vizniewski and Jane Dutton. Their work, um, initially Michigan, uh, Vizhnitski then went over to Yale, revolved around work orientation. And what they identified were essentially three ways of experiencing or seeing, perceiving our work. The first way is work as a job. Work as a job um, is about work that I have to do. I have no choice about it. Why, why do I have to do it? Because I have to provide for my family, You know, send money home if, uh, you know, if my family is elsewhere. Um, just survive. I have no choice. It's a chore. What am I looking forward to if it's a job? I'm looking forward to the end of the day or shift or to the weekend, TGIF, or uh, to retirement when I will no longer need to do this job. So this is work as a job. Then there are people who see their work primarily as a career. What's a career? Career is about the rat race. It's about progress. It's about making it to uh, the next stage. It's about making more money. It's about being more successful, getting more prestige. What I'm looking forward to is the raise, the advancement, or whatever lies ahead. That's work as a career. And then there are people who see their work as a calling. Seeing our work as a calling is about uh, experiencing a sense of purpose in in our lives. It's about our work being meaningful, important, significant. Uh, it's about us being passionate about what we do. What do we look forward to in our work when we experience as a calling? We look forward to more work. T-G-I-M. Thank God it's Monday. Um, now, all of us have job days. All of us have... Career days and all of us have calling days. The question is, which is the dominant orientation? And it turns out that it makes a very big difference. And it also turns out that, regardless of what we do, with almost no exceptions, there are some extreme exceptions. But almost with no exception, regardless of what we do, we can find a sense of meaning and purpose in our work. Amy Vigneski and Jen Dutson showed, for example, hospital janitors who saw their work as a job, you know, cleaning um, the the, the toilets and changing bedsheets. Then there were janitors who saw their work as a career doing the same thing, but they wanted to progress. And then there were janitors doing the exact same thing, cleaning toilets, changing bedsheets, who saw their work as a calling. They were enabling the work of the doctors and nurses. They were helping the patients get better, heal. In those very same hospitals, there were nurses and doctors who saw their work as a job. You know, let this day just be over. Or as a career, I want to become the chief doctor or the head nurse or whatever it is. Or as a calling, this is what I meant to do with my life. You know, it reminds me, my, my uh, business partner, Angus Ridgway, uh, he's British with a British sense of humor. Um, so one day he was having lunch with his brother-in-law. Now, his brother-in-law is a cardiologist. And his specialty is um, pacemakers. So what he does is put pacemakers by people's heart. And then every few years, he takes the pacemaker out, takes the pacemaker out, changes the batteries and put puts it back in. That's his, that's his specialty. So Angus was having lunch with him one day. Suddenly he says to, to his brother-in-law, he says, you know, I finally figured out what you do for a living. So his brother-in-law curiously asks, uh, what is it? And Angus said, what you do is you change batteries. Now, his brother-in-law didn't even smile. He looks at him intently and says, Angus, you're right. Some days I change batteries. Other days I save lives. And this is the distinction between a job or a calling. And the thing is, all of us have that Ability, because remember, reality is not just the object, not just what we do. It's also how we interpret what we do. You know, if, if I edit films, I can say, okay, well, I'm going to do it again. You know, use the, the program that I use every day. You know, I can do it with my almost eyes closed. Um, or I say, what I do now can lead millions and millions of people to experience more joy in their lives, to have special moments in their families as they're watching this together. Um, What I'm doing now also is what's providing for my dear family that I love so much. There are so many ways that we can um, recraft our work, reorient ourselves to see what is meaningful and important in what we do. And people who routinely do that are not just happier, not surprisingly, they're also more successful, successful in the traditional sense of the word. They have much more energy. Now, does this mean that they never have their job days? Of course they do. I have my job days too, and I just you know don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Um, however, the question is, how can you increase the calling to career or calling to job ratio in your life?
0: My sincerest apologies for this brief interruption, but if you are a creative professional who spends long hours at your desk and you are searching for a simple and affordable solution to optimize both your energy and your focus, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Here is a brief excerpt from a recent interview that I did with ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, the creator of the Topomat, who's here today to talk about his newest product, New Standard Whole Protein. My goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer, number one, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. Number two, they've got a glass, of new standard protein next to them so they can just fuel their body, fuel their brain. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world.
2: And even better for your listeners, with code OPTIMIZE, on either a one-time purchase or that first subscribe and save order, 50% off. So if you do that subscribe and save, that's 20% off and 50% off. With code Optimized. that's a fantastic deal.
0: If you're looking for a simple and affordable way to stay energetic, focused, and alleviate the chronic aches and pains that come from living at your computer, I recommend New Standard Whole Protein because it's sourced from high-quality ingredients that I trust, and it tastes great. To place your first order, visit optimizeyourself.me slash newstandard and use the code OPTIMIZE for 50% off your first order. It's really all about perception, and that's something that I, it took me a long time to figure that out. But one of the quotes that I've heard in many of the, the readings and learnings and courses that I've done that at first didn't really click and make sense, but then all of a sudden it was a giant aha moment. It's not that success leads to happiness. It's that happiness leads to success, and it's all about perception. And even though I had not heard of that study, I'm definitely gonna look into it, but I have a very similar framework that I share with my students where I've actually identified four kinds of jobs, very similar to what you said. There's the paycheck job, which is I just show up and I get the money and I go home. And then there's the career job, which is I'm busting my hump and maybe I'm getting another credit on the resume, but I'm working long hours, I'm burned out, toxic work environment, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's the dream job, which is very similar to having the calling. The fourth one that I have inserted in there is the lifestyle job where, yeah, I'm getting paid well, maybe I don't work that many hours, but God, I'm just bored. I have no connection to the work that I do. And to me, the dream job is when you feel like it's a calling, you are getting paid what you're worth, yet you're asking, are they really paying me to do this? I would do this for free, right? But it's all about perception. And like you said, uh, three different janitors doing the same jobs can have different levels of happiness based on their perception of the work that they do. And I wanna give people some practical steps and things they can think about. And I know that one of them that might be helpful is this idea of setting what's called a self-concordant goal. So how can we do that to get closer to identifying what is my calling? So when I'm at work, I'm thinking to myself, God, are they paying me? I would do this for free. So, you know, there are a few
1: ways to identify. The most important thing, of course, is to raise our levels of awareness in terms of what is it that will provide me a sense of meaning and calling. Now, how do we identify it? One way to identify it is to start by looking at our past experiences. So asking a question such as, when did I last experience a real sense of meaning and purpose in what I do? When did I have periods in my life when I experienced a lot of flow? when I was immersed in whatever it is that I was doing. In other words, it's about learning from past experiences, learning from the best past experiences. And then after that, the next question is, okay, so what, um, what do I want to do now with my life? What are, in psych- psychological terms, what are self-concordant goals for me? Goals that are aligned with my values, goals that are aligned with my passions. Goals that are also aligned with my strengths, things that I that, that I can do well. You know, I, I in uh, in my book Happier, I introduce um, a model which um, which I call the uh, MPS model, which is uh, about finding meaning, pleasure, and strength. And um, the first question is, what is meaningful to me? Uh, what is important to me? What, what's significant? Uh, the second question is, what's pleasurable to me? What do, you, what do I enjoy doing? What do I do when I think I can't believe they're paying me for, for that in, in your language? And the third question is, um, what are my strengths? What am I good at? And finding our self-concordant goals, the goals that will ultimately lead to most happiness, both in terms of the process and outcome, uh, it's about finding the overlap. Something that is meaningful, pleasurable, and that I'm good at. And, uh, you know, let me quickly share with you a a personal example. So, you know, think about music. So music um, gives me a great deal of pleasure. Uh, I really enjoy listening to music, uh, whether it's classical music, whether it's uh, 60s music, whether it's first and foremost, Whitney Houston. Um, It's also very meaningful to me. You know, I think of uh, my my favorite author, Marianne Evans, uh, a.k.a. George Eliot. She um, she said that if I had music in my life, I would have no other mortal need. You know, she said this back in uh, 1860. Um, So I, I relate to that. At the same time, you don't want to hear me sing. Not my strength. And hence, I do spend a lot of time listening to music, but I did not choose that as my, as my calling as my, as my, or, or my career. Um, on the other hand, writing. You know, writing is very meaningful to me. On most days, not all days, but most days, I really enjoy it. Um, and I'm good at it. So this is why I chose that as, as, my, as my calling, as my self-concordant goal. And we can do that with everything that we do in life. And identify the overlap, because when we identify the overlap, um, these are the places where we're most likely to thrive, flourish, experience mo- most flow, enjoy peak performance and peak experience.
0: Well, there's a, a, an author that's also one of my mentors. His name is Ramit Sethi. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Um, but he talks about this idea of how it's a mistake to simply, quote unquote, follow your passion. Just find your passion, and you're, you're going to be, you know, blissful in life, and you're going to find your happiness. And like you said, if you followed your passion, you would become a musician because you're passionate about music. But clearly, that's not in alignment with these other areas. So you have to find something, like you said, where you also have a strength. Yes, it it, it has to
1: be the com the combination because remember, reality is about subject and object, and there are certain objective. Uh, uh, there there is an objective reality, I and mean, in that objective reality. I don't think people are going to pay to hear me sing.
0: One of the things that I talk about so much in my program and is probably the, the cornerstone of where all of this started years ago comes down to a single word, which is burnout. Burnout is a manifestation of anxiety, depression, all of these other things. And I am not a scientist nor a researcher nor an academic, but I've had a hypothesis. And I want to I want to get your professional opinion on this hypothesis. I firmly believe that burnout is largely at its core created by a lack of setting proper expectations, whether it's expectations, what I can actually do for others, what I can do for myself, the amount of time that I allow to accomplish things, but more importantly, the expectation that I'm supposed to be doing this thing and I'm supposed to enjoy it because that's what everybody else tells me to. Would you say that's a relatively accurate hypothesis?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting you you bring up uh, expectations. If, um, you know, people have asked me, and. Um, what have you learned over the last 30 years or how is your understanding of happiness different today than it was 30 years ago or 15 years ago? And the main answer for me, I mean, there there are different things that, that I learned, new research that came out, but the main thing for me, the biggest learning was around expectations. So if we were speaking 15 years ago, I would have said to you, listen, Zach, expectations, most important. Look at all the research that talks about beliefs as self-fulfilling prophecies. If you have high expectations, you're more likely to reach them. Um, and I would have essentially advocated expectations, period. Today, I have a much more nuanced understanding of the role of expectations, which very much relates to, uh, to what you were talking about. When it comes to success, high expectations is important. We know that. We know that having uh, uh, high expectations in terms of your success professionally, you're more likely to do well. Athletes, high expectations, they're more likely to to succeed. However, not so when it comes to happiness. Let me give you um, uh, two examples. So the first example is, let's say my expectation is that after I learn all this science of happiness thing and become an expert here, I will be happy all the time. If this is my expectation, which, by the way, was my expectation when I embarked on the journey, you are inevitably going to be disappointed because every person, no exception, experiences sadness and anger and envy and hatred and disappointment and anxiety. These are all natural human emotions. And, they, and we experience them just as night follows day. And if my expectations is that my life will be uh, exempt from these states, I mean, for significant major disappointment. Not only that, when I do experience sadness and reject that sadness, then um, that sadness is only going to intensify, grow stronger. Same for anxiety or envy or or, or anger. So, having realistic expectations rather than unrealistic, perfect expectations. That's very important. Let me give you another example. This is from relationships. So, you know, we're standing at the altar or whatever, you know, committing to one another. And at that point, we are certain that we're going to be living happily ever after. That is going to be this constant honeymoon. Uh, Wrong. Maybe in the movies, it looks like that's what's going to happen. But the thing is that movies end Usually, where love begins, and um, in every relationship, even the best of them, there are wonderful moments, and there are very difficult moments. There are conflicts and disagreements and gridlocks, and lows, in addition to the highs. So, if my expectation is that we'll be happy all the time, I'm bound to be disappointed. One of the reasons why there uh, so many relationships burn is because of unrealistic expectations. Now, these unrealistic expectations put a lot of stress on our system. And this is where it's connected to burnout. When we put a lot of stress on the system, what happens? It burns. Whether you're talking about an engine or whether you're talking about a human being. The most important thing to understand about stress and consequently, uh, burnout is that stress in and of itself is not the problem that potentially stress is even good for us how is that you know you go to the gym and you lift weights you're stressing your muscles not a bad thing you you lift them again and you know two days later you go back to the gym again and you actually grow stronger as a result of the stress the problem in the gym begins when you go to the gym and then you go again and again and a minute later again and again And that's when you get injured. That's when you get enervated, weaker rather than stronger, energized. So the same psychologically. The problem is not the stress itself. The problem is when we don't have recovery. And when we don't have recovery, that's when we burn out. That's when we get psychologically injured. So punctuating our lives with periods of recovery, which is very much associated with having realistic expectations, because if I have unrealistic expectations, I don't have time for recovery. I don't have time to lose ground. I have to lead a perfect life where I'm working 24-7, where I'm succeeding at every juncture. And um, that's a prescription for overstress. For, for burnout.
0: The final place that I want to go that I think is so important to tie all this together that has so much to do with expectations is if you are somebody listening to this and you're thinking, you know what, I am just doing the paycheck job. I didn't even realize it, but I have no connection to my work. The burnout makes so much more sense, but I don't know how to set proper expectations for the jobs I really want to do then that's where I tell them, you have to reach out to people and you have to find your version of an expert or a mentor. And they'll just reach out to some random colleagues or somebody else doing something that you know maybe they're interested in. I'm a big believer in that I wanna learn from the best in the world. If I wanna learn something specific, who's the best on the planet at doing? And when it comes to behavioral psychology, Adam Grant, he's my spirit animal. I love that guy. When it comes to happiness, I set up a call with you. My fitness mentor, because I decided at the age of 40, I want to become an American Ninja Warrior. My fitness mentor is Tony Horton, creator of the P90X exercise program. I want to learn from the best. So talk to me a little bit more about how this uh, relates to this idea of focusing on what works in the field of positive psychology and why even though it might be more difficult, I should really find the right people doing exactly what I want to do.
1: You know, when, when I recommend books to people, I always say the best self-help books are biographies, good, solid biographies. Why? Because when you read biographies of uh, successful people, and again, whether it's in coaching or whether it's in, in, in computers or whatever it is, um, you're learning from, from them. They are your role models. And then you can assimilate, internalize, their practices. You know, what did Bill Gates do uh, on his way or, or Steve Jobs? What did they do on their way uh, to, to the top? You know, what did, what did Michael Jordan do? What can you learn from him, you know, if, 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 if basketball is your, your thing or LeBron? And when you learn from them and apply that knowledge in your life, you can fulfill your potential. Now, it's not just one person. Fortunately, today we have access to, to, to many very successful basketball players and many great coaches. You know, you have the uh, autobiography of uh, Michael Jordan, but you also have the autobiography of Phil Jackson that you can also learn from when it comes to um, to, to computer science, you know, or to, to, to um, technology. You have the biography, fantastic biography of Steve Jobs, and you have, uh, you know, the biography of Michael Dell. So you can learn from different people how to um, fulfill your potential. There are three elements to fulfilling our potential. One is to learn from the best, as you point out. The second is to learn from yourself. So it's not just about research, looking outside. It's also about me-search, so learning from your best experiences, this is why I emphasized earlier, so when did I experience meaning in my work? When, was, when did I play my best game as a squash player or as a basketball player? What did I do differently in terms of my preparation, in terms of uh, my the mindset? So you can learn a lot um, from your best experiences. And after you learn from other people's best experiences, and again, we can also do it obviously with a coach or by, by learning about them or from them directly, um, after you learn from your experience, then it's all about applying what you learn. And this is, you know, the um, Anders uh, Ericsson's idea of, uh, of peak, where he talks about the 10,000 hours you need to put in the work. And this is also where I take issue with a lot of the self-help literature that says, you know, just uh, think and you'll grow rich. Whatever your mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. It's part of the equation. It's not all of the equation. You also need to engage in real learning from the best. You need to engage in real learning from the best within yourself, and you need to put in the hours.
0: I'm all about putting in the work. That's my thing. Is anybody that works with me, they know that I'm going to put in the hours. I'm going to push them outside their comfort zone. And so many people, especially in Hollywood, will say, well, there's no path to success. If I want to be an academic, there are certain steps that you take, papers that you write, classes that you take. If I want to be a doctor, if I want to be a lawyer, I can tell you how to be a doctor in five minutes on Google. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's simple. I know the steps. In Hollywood and creative industries, there is no path. And I say, of course there is. You're not the first person that's ever tried to do this success leaves clues it has a recipe find somebody else that's already used that recipe that's doing exactly what it is that you want to do and if you're really connecting with deeper fulfilling meaning my guess is they're doing it for the same reason you automatically have something in common But to think that there's nobody else out there that's doing exactly where you want to go next, like no, just just do your research, reach out, find the best that's doing what you want to do.
1: Yeah, you know, there's um, very important work by uh, uh, Richard Snyder, um, the late uh, positive psychologist, on uh, hope, and he talks about hope in in a scientific way because very often we we associate hope with religion or even with with mysticism. Well, he broke it down to its two key elements the first key element of hope that he talks about is what he calls willpower and willpower is what we mostly talk about when we say okay yes I can do it and you know yes you can as, as a mantra and willpower is important however there's another element and that element he calls way power and way power sounds like this okay I'm going in this direction if that doesn't work, then I'm going to go in this direction. Oh, and if that if B doesn't work, then I'm going to go to, to, to C and on and on. So finding alternative ways of getting to your destination. Now, if you read biographies or if you interview different people, you have many pathways, many ways to get to wherever you want to get to. In other words, they provide you alternatives. In other words, they provide you way power in addition to the willpower that you presumably have uh, you know, I remember watching um, Serena Williams playing, uh, I believe it was in Wimbledon, and she had just won a match where she was, not, she was supposed to lose. I mean, she was uh, a set down and a few games down, and as she has done a number of times throughout her uh, illustrious career, she came back. And the interviewer asked her, how did you do that? Or how do you do that? Because again, not the first time, this is no fluke. And uh, she said, look, when I go on court, I always have a plan. A game plan. That's plan A. If plan A doesn't work, I go to plan B. If plan B doesn't work, I go to plan C. If plan C doesn't work, I go to plan D. She said, you understand what I'm talking about, right? You got the, the drift. This is what she does. And you know, obviously Serena and other great athletes have willpower. Well, one of the things that is that distinguishes the greatest from the rest is they also have way power alternatives
0: and I think that the the other thing I want to extract from this that's so important that to delineate some of the most successful people from those that aren't is the amount of times that they've failed. So what I heard was that plan A failed, So plan B failed, and then plan C failed, but we're so afraid of failure. And if you talk about biographies, like it's so funny that you brought up the Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan thing, because I've been watching The Last Dance on Netflix. I could give two craps about basketball. I just don't like the sport, but it's fascinating to understand the mindset of success. And if you look at certain statistics, Michael Jordan is the biggest failure in the history of the sport, but in in that specific context, right? Same thing with Thomas Edison. He failed more than any inventor in history. And when people ask me, how did you get where you are? I said, because I'm really good at failing as fast as possible. I jump right in, I fail, I learn, I iterate, and I find another plan, but you have to get over that fear of failure. And if you think I have to choose this job, it's gotta be the right one and I gotta make the right choice, try it. Maybe it's not your calling, that's fine. So you failed at that, you gathered information, find another one, try something else. You get to create your own unique path. Yeah, Zach, this
1: is, this is music to my ears, I must say. You know, when uh, when, when I teach about uh, th- this topic, I always begin the class by, um, by saying to the students the following, I say, look, full disclosure here. Um, I have two objectives uh, for this class. My first objective is that you fail more. I don't think you fail enough. My second objective is that you not only fail more, you also embrace failure. So the mantra that I repeat over and over again, whether it's as part of that class or whether it's to my kids and to myself and and, and clients, is learn to fail or fail to learn. Learn to fail or fail to learn. And you see the most successful people in history, whether it's the Michael Jordans of the world or um, the Babe Ruths of the world or the Anita Roddick, the founder of the body shop, or... Thomas Edison, as you mentioned, or the greatest artists in the world. This is research on scientists and artists by uh, Dean Simonton from UC Davis. They are also the people who had failed the most times. It's no coincidence. You know, they certainly did deserve a place in the Hall of Fame of success and the Hall of Fame of failure.
0: And just to, to wrap this up, going back to something we talked about much earlier, I put failure on my calendar. I can tell you right now that from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Sundays, I've got a whole lot of failure coming up because that's when I do my big ninja training for the week with my mentor. I'm just gonna fail over and over and over but every week when I go back, I fail a little bit less than I did the week before. So I've never reached the pinnacle of success and I can say, I'm now strong. I'm now in shape, I've made it. It's more, you know what? I sucked a little bit less than I did last week. I'm happy with that. (laughs) I think I'm gonna go back the next week and it's the same thing with my work, with writing, with podcasting. I'll listen to this podcast at some point and say, you know what? I did a great job, but I could have said this question differently or I stumbled on my words. So I want to do it a little bit better the next time. But I didn't think, I don't know if I'm ready to to talk to Tall. Like, he's, he's a big, you know, big name in his field. And who am I? I? I better wait until I'm better. Like, you know what? If I fail, I learn and I do it again. And to me, it's all about iteration. And to me, the process of doing that makes this so much more fun than focusing on the outcome. Yeah, it's – um it's that. And, uh, it's also
1: more fun because we, uh, take a big load of our shoulders. You know, it's very weighty to think I can't afford to, to fail, or I have to do this perfectly. It, and, uh, by the way, this especially applies to the, to the creative arts. It's very difficult to be, to be creative without, uh, the permission to fail.
0: And as a creative, I spent all day long getting pages and pages telling me all of my failures. We call them notes. <laughs> here are all the things that don't work. And you're like, but but I, I believed in that. That Those are my ideas. Like <laughs> I'm just basically told 150 times a day, 10 pages worth, here are all the places where you failed as an artist. And it's so hard at first to not take that personally, but then you realize I'm just here to collaborate, tell the story better, work with great people. And again, if, it, if it's attached to more feeling like it's a calling, I'm not worried about the details, right? But when you're burned out and you're not attached to it, you just take all that stuff personally and it just keeps digging in and digging in, um, which which is why I wanted to have this conversation with you today is I wanted people to better understand how can I pursue more fulfilling, meaningful work that I feel it as a calling? Because I think that's really the biggest contributor to burnout. Yes, it's hours and it's eating poorly and it's not sleeping well enough, but I've eaten poorly and not exercised and not slept very well on jobs that I loved and I was exhausted, but I wasn't burned out because I felt connected to it and it was meaningful. And yeah, I needed to catch up on some sleep and maybe I felt like crap for a week, but it also felt like it was worth it as opposed to why, why am I doing this every day? And that's why I wanted to have this conversation. Um, I could, I've barely just gotten started. You and I could talk for another <laughs> three hours so easily, but I wanna be very respectful of your time. So before we go, I wanna know a little bit more about your Happiness Studies Academy, because you're one of the first, if not the first person to say, why is this not something that we can be accredited in no different than biology or chemistry or anything else?
1: Yeah, so, so you know, Zach, this uh, idea came to me I think it was uh, five, just over five years ago when I was on a flight, a question came to mind. And the question was, how is it that there is a field of study for uh, psychology, which is my field, or, uh, or, or film studies, or, or history, or, uh, uh, or, or biology, or medicine, or you name it, and there is no field of study for happiness? Yeah, there is positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what uh, philosophers have to say about happiness? What about what uh, uh, sociologists and economists and theologians, what about what great movies have to say about happiness? Why isn't there a field or rather an interdisciplinary field of study that brings together what all these uh, respective disciplines have to say about the good life? And on that flight, I resolved to help create a field. Of happiness studies, and and this is what my colleagues and I have been working on for the for the past five years. And uh, we co-founded the Happiness Studies Academy, where we offer a certificate program in happiness studies. Soon there will be a a university degree, a master's degree in happiness studies. And we essentially address two questions there. The first question is, um, how can I, as the student participant, how can I become happier? And the second question, how can I help others? become happier. And it's not just a um, a solipsistic question. It's not just a question that focuses on the self, because we know when we increase levels of happiness, generosity and kindness go up, relationships improve, uh, we become healthier, we become more creative. So we pursue happiness as an end in itself and also as a means towards other valuable ends.
0: So if I'm interested in becoming a student of yours, and I want to immerse myself in this, where would I learn more and become a part yeah.
1: of this? So our, our website is uh, happinessstudies.academy. And, um, and we'd love to, to to see you there. You know, we are uh, we're very passionate about our work. So many of our students are very passionate about indirectly pursuing happiness and helping others do the same.
0: And I understand you're also very generous with a coupon code as well.
1: Yes, indeed. And um, we, we'll do almost anything. Just just, just come, just join us.
0: You just want to make us happy, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so one last quick thing, that's a big investment to become happier. Give me one really simple thing I can do as soon as I get off the call by the time I go to bed tonight to make myself just a tiny bit happier by tomorrow. How
1: about three, Zach? Is that okay? I'm sure,
0: I'll take it. Let's short do it. Short ones,
1: short ones. First thing, uh, give yourself the permission to be human. Accept painful emotions. Accept the fact that things are not going well if they're not going well. Uh, it Paradoxically, it's um, the first step towards happiness is allowing in unhappiness. So that's that's the first one. The second one, spend quality time with people you care about and who care about you. And when I say quality time, it means single tasking. Just be with them. And even if it's uh, te- you know, 10 extra minutes of that, that can go uh, a long way. Part of that, part of the, of the second one is also be generous, be kind, give. One of the best ways to increase levels of happiness to improve relationships, is through generosity. And this, of course, relates to the work of uh, Adam Grant, whom you mentioned earlier. And uh, the third thing, again, do what Oprah has been telling us to do for so many years. Express gratitude, savor what you have, whether it's in writing, whether it's visualizing and being grateful for what you have, appreciate it. Because when we appreciate the good in our lives, the good appreciates we have more of.
0: Tal, this has been an immense pleasure. And uh, talk about a, a bucket list item I can check off. Just this conversation alone, um, let's say that it's both created happiness and pleasure for me. Um, <laughs> this this has been a lot of fun. This means a lot to me. I hope that, uh, and not hope, but I know that it will have a profoundly positive impact on my listeners and my students as well. Um, I can't thank you enough for, for giving your time today and being so generous. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Zach. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. If you'd like to access the original show notes, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 132. And as a reminder, if you'd like some guidance and support setting goals for 2022 that you will actually follow through with, don't forget to sign up for my free five-part email course on designing your hero's journey. Visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter to get started. And I'll even throw in a special bonus guide to make this process even simpler for you. Next week in our five-part interview series, I'm sharing one of my favorite interviews of all time with Greg McKeown to discuss his seminal book, Essentialism. Until then, have a safe, happy, and healthy holiday season and be well.